Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, in whose house the scribes and elders had gathered. But Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards in order to see how this would end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were looking for false testimony against Jesus, so that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At the last, two came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But Jesus was silent. Then the high priest said to him, I put you under oath before the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, for now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has blasphemed. Why do we need witnesses still? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat at his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Messiah. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard. A servant girl came and said to him, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before all of them, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he went out to the porch, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man is with Jesus of Nazareth. Again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, bystanders came by and said to Peter, Certainly you are also one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to curse, and he swore an oath, I do not know the man. At that moment, the cock crowed. Then Peter remembered that Jesus had said, Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus in order to bring him about his death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he repented and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elder. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is it to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them in the treasury, since they are blood money. After conferring together, they used them to buy the potter's field as a place to bury foreigners. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then it was fulfilled and spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whom the price had been set, on whom some of the people of Israel had set the price. They had gave them the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You say so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not know how many accusations they t make against you? But he gave them no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the festival the governor was accustomed to 
release a prisoner for the crowd, anyone whom they wanted. At this time, they had a notorious prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to him, Whom do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who had called Messiah? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. While, they were sitting on the, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with this innocent man, for today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. The governor again said to them, Which of these two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? All of them said, Let him be crucified. Then he asked, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted at him all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he could not do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Then the people as a whole answered, His blood be upon us and on our children. So he released Barabbas for them. After flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Thanks, Scott. We've got quite the uh, chunk of text this morning, so I'm just going to open us in prayer. God, thanks just for this time and this space and everyone here today. Um, Just make your presence known. We love you. Amen. All right. I want you to think about a time where you felt conflicted. It doesn't have to be a big conflict. Maybe you said something you shouldn't have said, or maybe you did something that you shouldn't have done or you didn't do something that you maybe should have done? I was thinking about this question this week, and this story came to me about four or five years ago. I went to Target. Now, I know some of you love Target. I'm not quite at that level. I like Target. I like a good Target run, though. And so I went to Target, and I bought the typical Target stuff. Shampoo, conditioner, facial cleanser, nail polish, some snacks. I gotta get the hot Cheetos, I know. I can't quit them. And so I got some loose stuff in the cart, and then I also bought these two kind of shelving units, and they came in these long boxes, long narrow boxes, the kind that you can fit in the cart, but only one end fits in the cart, and then the other end hangs out the front of the cart. So I bought, got my stuff, I got to the cash register, I put all my loose items on the little conveyor belt, I left the big boxes in the cart so the cashier could just scan those with her hand scanner. I got to my car, and I'm loading all the stuff in my car, and I realized there's a bottle of shampoo that's gotten wedged underneath the boxes in my cart. And I thought, well, that's weird. How did it fall out of the bag and get underneath this box? Huh. So I looked at my receipt, and I realized I hadn't paid for this bottle of shampoo. So I put all the stuff in my cart in the car, and I thought, okay, I gotta go back in and like, pay for this bottle of shampoo. And I thought, how's that interaction really going to go? Like, I'm going to walk in. I'm going to walk back into Target, and I'm going to say, hey, I was in here earlier, and I paid for all my stuff. Well, I thought I paid for all my stuff, but not this bottle of shampoo, so now I'm back. Like, I made it to my car, and now I'm back, and I want to pay for this bottle of shampoo. And I thought, "Eh, I don't have the time or the energy for that. So I got in my car, and I drove home. (laughs) 
And even as I like tell, this was like four or five years ago, and even as I tell this story this morning, it still causes like some inner tension and some inner stress in me. And psychologists have a word for this inner state of tension, and it's called cognitive dissonance. So cognitive dissonance is a state of tension that happens when we hold two cognitions that are psychologically inconsistent. So that could be something like a, a belief or a behavior or an idea. In our Target story, I like to think that I'm a good citizen, and when I go into a store and leave with items, I've paid for those items. But my behavior in this instance shows a different story. So this stress that causes that is caused from cognitive dissonance can be anything from a really minor discomfort all the way to like some deep anguish and trauma, depending on what cognitions are being challenged and in what situations. So to take this a little bit further, how many of you uh, know what I'm talking about when I say the Enneagram? Raise your hand. Oh, good, a lot of you. Perfect. So a few years ago, I took a class from Dr. Bruner, and it was called Awareness and Identity. And one semester, we had to go through the Enneagram. And if you're not familiar, I know most of you are, but if you're not familiar, really quickly, it's kind of this ancient tool that divides up personalities into nine different types, and it basically shows us how different people engage and interact with the world, and how they manage their emotions and that sort of thing. So I was pretty sure going into this class that I was an Enneagram six. And after I read this paragraph that I'm going to read to you, I was 100% sure that I was an Enneagram 6. So this paragraph is from The Wisdom of the Enneagram. It's a textbook. And so I didn't put it up there, so you can just listen. Until they get in touch with their own inner guidance, sixes are like a ping-pong ball that is constantly shuttling back and forth between whatever influence is hitting the hardest. Because of this reactivity, no matter what we say about sixes, the opposite is often also true. They are both strong and weak, fearful and courageous, trusting and distrusting, group people and soloists, and on and on. It is the contradictory picture that is the characteristic fingerprint of sixes. They are a bundle of opposites. So what does a bundle of opposites or cognitive dissonance have to do with anything that we read this morning? So as I was reading this giant chunk of text for this morning, one thing kept standing out to me, and it was the story of Peter. And I think this idea of a contradictory picture or this bundle of opposite idea is all over Peter's story. So what do we know about Peter? We know Peter is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. We know that Peter is one of three disciples who are considered the closest to Jesus. I think is Peter, James, and John. We're kind of this inner circle of um, disciples within the inner circle here. We first meet Peter in Matthew 4, I think it is. Peter and his brother Andrew are fishermen, and they are fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus walks by, and he says something like, follow me, and I will make you fish for people, and they follow them. And these two are some of the first disciples that Jesus brings with him into his ministry. What I like about Peter, and what I think a lot of people like about Peter, is he says the quiet part out loud. He speaks his mind, He's bold. He often, kind of in my head, when everyone's standing around and the disciples are discussing amongst themselves, Peter's the one that raises his hand and just asks the question. He speaks his mind. A few highlights from Peter's life. We see him walk on water in Matthew 14. Disciples and Peter are in a boat, and Jesus walks on water towards them, and Peter gets out of the boat and walks on water towards Jesus. 
until he begins to doubt and then he sinks. In Matthew 16, where are we? Here we go, in Matthew 16 we see this interaction. Jesus says to them, to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And then just literally a few lines later, it's like the next paragraph in my Bible, we see this interaction. Jesus foretells his death and resurrection, and check out what Peter does. Peter took him aside, Peter takes Jesus aside, and begins to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block for me, to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. So already we can sort of see this contradictory picture playing out in Peter's life. Just a few more points from Peter's life. A few weeks ago, Lexi talks about the transfiguration and Peter came up quite a bit in her message. Last week, Justin had the section of text um, in where they were in Gethsemane and there were a few disciples falling asleep and they were told to stay, take watch with Jesus. Peter was one of those guys. And then that brings us to this morning where we see in the midst of this, this section of text that Scott read, we see Peter denying Jesus three times. He denies him twice in front of two different servant girls. He denies him once, um, just says to the bystanders standing around. He weeps bitterly, and this is the last that we hear from him in Matthew's gospel. So a few things that, that stood out to me just in this section. One, I have to point out the role that women play in the last week of Jesus' life. Because it seems we know that women were important to Jesus' ministry, we know that they were followers of Jesus, and it seems like, to me, women show up in the last week of his life, often in the margins of the story, yes, but they have a way of speaking truth into what is happening. And Pilate's wife is this perfect example of this. While he, Pilate, was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that innocent man. She recognizes that he's innocent. And here we have a couple of servant girls. Now what do we know about ancient Israel at this time? Who has power in ancient Israel? Who has status in ancient Israel? Certainly not servants, and certainly not girls or women. I think this contrast between Jesus, we see Jesus who's brought before arguably some of the most powerful individuals at this time in Israel. He's confronted with with a lot of power and he's holding his own. And then right after that we see Peter and he's confronted by arguably the least powerful people in Israel at this time, two servant girls. And what does he do? He folds so fast, he throws in the towel real quick. Another thing from this section that I just thought was interesting was as Peter is denying Jesus, he never uses his name. The first time he says, I don't know what you're talking about, and then he repeats, I do not know the man, I do not know the man. I don't know if that's worth 
reading into or looking at. I don't know, I just thought it was like an interesting little tidbit. So why does Peter deny Jesus? Why? What's going on here? I read a bunch of commentaries, I don't know, half a dozen commentaries, just on this section to kind of figure out this answer to this question. Why does Peter deny Jesus? What's going on here? And there were three different threads that came out for me that I wanted to just talk about a bit this morning. The first one is this. It's possible that Peter denies Jesus because this, seeing Jesus beaten and mocked and arrested and tormented doesn't fit Peter's idea of who the Messiah should be. Maybe he's afraid, maybe it makes him uncomfortable. And he's following at a distance because he's not quite sure if he wants to fully commit himself. He wants to wait and see how this plays out before he's fully on board. That could be one reason. The second reason is this. It's possible that Peter was following Jesus as closely as he could. Peter wasn't a part of this religious elite or this powerful group of people. He was hanging out with the rebel, with Jesus. And so it's possible he physically could not get to where Jesus was at. Maybe he's following as closely as he could, and and even more, he promised to remain loyal, and so maybe in his mind, remaining loyal means remaining free and remaining out of jail, and so he can kind of be free to help in any way. I think this reason's a little ironic because he spends his evening denying the very person he's trying to help. Um, So this one's a little confusing, but I can follow it. The third reason is this. The third reason has something to do with its timeline of events. I don't know about you, but when I read the last kind of week of Jesus' life, for some reason in my mind, I'm thinking like weeks and months, and really we should be thinking in hours and days. So we see the disciples and Peter and Jesus sit down for the Last Supper. Judas is called out as the one who will betray him. Jesus predicts Peter's denial. They go to Gethsemane, the disciples are falling asleep, Jesus is arrested and taken to Caiaphas, and Peter's following at a distance. That is all in a span of a couple hours, or like evening to early morning hours the next day. And so it's possible that Peter gets caught up in this situation. They sit down to have dinner, there's a lot of wine, he, Judas is pointed out as the one who's going to betray Jesus, like one of our own is going to do this. And then they go to the Gethsemane, and we know Peter's low on sleep because he fell asleep, what, two or three times? And then Jesus is arrested, and there's chaos and excitement and confusion. And then he's trying to follow him as closely as he can, but it's at a bit of a distance. And then these two annoying little girls try and ask him a bunch of questions. And before he knows it, he's denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times before he even knows what's happened. So for me this week, I was, I was thinking through these three, these, these three kind of reasons why, why Peter might have denied Jesus. And the first two I could hang with, they kind of made sense to me. And this third one, I thought, eh, I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know if I quite buy that. So this is kind of N.T. Wright's example of why Peter denies Jesus. And N.T. Wright would say, the parallels between Peter and ourselves are almost too amusing. And it was like Thursday morning that I was prepping for this this morning, and it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. I didn't like this third reason because it's all too relevant. It's all too relatable to what I do all the time. 
So I do this all the time, and uh, especially one of the examples that came to mind was when I'm on an airplane. Okay, hear me out. So I like to travel, but I don't like to fly. I'm an Enneagram 6, like I said, and so our stress response is to just think of worst-case scenarios every single time. So before I get on a plane, I think about the worst-case scenarios that have happened, that could happen, the worst-case scenarios that have never happened, but whatever, there's a first for everything. And I get airplane sick, so I've taken Dramamine, and I've probably taken too much Dramamine because I have a fear of throwing up, and so I haven't eaten a lot because I don't want to throw up on the plane. And then I do this thing, it's really embarrassing, but I kind of self-dehydrate because using the bathroom on the airplane is like the worst-case scenario ever. And so I haven't drank a lot of water, so I'm, I'm a bundle of joy to fly with. So by the time I get on the plane, I just want to put in my, my AirPods, I want to listen to a podcast, or I want to watch junk TV that I downloaded from Netflix onto my phone. And I just want to live in my little bubble of anxiety and fear until those wheels hit the ground again and I am where I need to be. That's all I want to do. And the poor person that sits next to me, I mean, usually they're so kind and so sweet and they want to talk to me. And I, I have had good interactions on a plane. I'm not a jerk the whole time. But I know the question's coming, what do you do for work? And I don't want to talk about church, I don't want to talk about God, and I don't want to talk about Jesus on an airplane because I just want to live in my anxious little bubble. That's all I want to do. Do you see what happened? I got caught up in my fear, my anxiety, my like physical desires and needs and wants, and before I've even like had a conversation with someone, I've denied Jesus so many times. So I think this, I think N.T. Wright is correct in that we get caught up in our physical kind of uh, thought patterns and loops and our anxieties and we, we deny Jesus kind of like in our lives before we even kind of think about it. So Peter denies Jesus, he weeps bitterly, and this is the last we hear from him in the Gospel of Matthew. But we know Peter's story doesn't end here. We know that if you read the Gospel of John, John's account of the Gospel, there's this really interesting interaction between Jesus and Peter after Jesus is resurrected. Peter and a few disciples are on a boat and Jesus appears on the shore. And when Peter notices it's Jesus, he like, he doesn't wait for them to row in, he just jumps in and swims to the shore. And Peter and Jesus have this kind of really interesting interaction. If you read in Acts, you can read all about Peter's like, teaching and preaching and really his leadership within the early church. Paul wrote that Peter was a pillar of the early church. And then in 64 AD, under Emperor Nero, he is crucified. And church tradition says that Peter didn't feel worthy to die the same way as Jesus. And so he was crucified upside down. So we kind of flew over Peter's life at 30,000 foot level here. Um, but how would you describe Peter? Knowing what you know, what are some words that you would use to describe Peter? Just shout it out. This is, you can yell at me. What do you think? Bold, Bold yeah. Bold. He was. A hypocrite, yeah. Yeah. Impulsive, sure. So this is my list as I was thinking about how I would describe Peter, I think Peter is loyal and disloyal. I think he's present and distant. He's a follower and a leader. He's courageous and he's a coward. He denies Christ and he declares Jesus the Messiah. He's selfish and he's giving. 
Um, and I think all of what you said is really relevant too. And I, when I wrote this list, I actually said out loud to myself, this guy is all over the place. Oh, he's a bundle of opposites. He's so stinking human and he's so stinking relatable. I mean, fill in your descriptors to that list. I'll fill in mine. Sometimes I'm an awesome spouse. Sometimes I'm a terrible spouse. Sometimes I'm a kind and generous friend. Sometimes I'm a distant and annoying friend. Sometimes I'm really selfish with my money. Sometimes I'm generous. Sometimes I'm a fun and engaging coworker. Sometimes I'm sarcastic and really grumpy. So fill in your descriptors. Take your pick. I think this is why Peter's story stood out to me. Just like N.T. Wright said, I mean, the parallels between Peter and ourselves are just too amusing. So going back to this question, why does Peter deny Jesus? I think I would answer that with my own question. Why do we, as Jesus followers, sometimes not look a thing like Jesus? I look nothing like Jesus on an airplane, not even close. Why do we, as people who know and love Jesus, sometimes behave or act in ways that are far from Christ-like? So I'm just gonna wrap up the band. You guys can come back up, and the ushers, you can get ready for communion. Um, I just have like 30 more seconds, and then we're gonna take communion. So I guess my main point, Justin and Lexi have been pushing me all week. What's your main point? What's your main point? And I think I've got my main point. Peter was arguably one of the closest people to Jesus when he walked the face of the earth. He was part of this inner circle in the inner circle. And Peter was kind of a mess. He was all over the place. And you know what? Jesus wasn't surprised. He knew Peter was gonna deny him. He knew all of that was gonna happen. He knew Peter's weaknesses and his shortcomings and his downfalls. But I love Jesus' response to Peter. He responds with compassion, he responds with love, and he draws him in closer. And so I think the same goes for us. Like Jesus isn't surprised by our weaknesses or our shortcomings or our screw-ups. I think his response to us is the same too. I believe Jesus loves us, Jesus loves you, and he's beckoning us to draw in closer. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram.